With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello and welcome to Whistleblower Nation here on Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Ella. What is a whistleblower? A whistleblower is a person who makes public disclosures of wrongdoing, corruption, and crime. These courageous people often suffer retaliatory actions because of their disclosures, but I am here to celebrate these people and give them a platform, because shining a light on wrongdoing wherever it occurs plays an important role in keeping the society peaceful, free, and just. So today I have with me Michael DeCourt, and I'm very pleased to have you here. Thank you, Michael, for coming. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so a little bit about Michael. Michael was born in 1965. He grew up in Lambertville, New Jersey, with an adopting family. He's been married for 27 years and has two children, one daughter who graduated college last year and a son in the U.S. Air Force. And here's a little bit about his career life. He joined the U.S. Navy in 1983 and became an electronics technician, served for six years. Uh, what's interesting to me is that he never received a college degree and went on to hold such important positions. And as some of us know, Edward Snowden also never received a college degree. And I know, Michael, you have, you have, uh, you're on the fence about Edward Snowden, but I think it's interesting that, you know, you don't necessarily need college degrees to do great things in life. And soon after leaving the U.S. Navy, he became a communications engineer for the U.S. State Department. He also became the lead communications en- engineer for their counterterrorism group. From there, he went on to Lockheed Martin as a systems engineer, worked his way up to project manager, then program and engineer manager, worked in aircraft simulation on the Aegis. Is it, did I say it right? Is it Aegis or Aegis? Aegis. Aegis, weapons system on the Coast Guard's deep water program and at NORAD. He was the software engineering manager for all of NORAD at one point, and while at Lockheed, he raised safety and national security issues while working the Coast Guard's deep water program after 9-11. That led him to be terminated from Lockheed, and this was after going up the chain of command and receiving a hand-signed letter from Lockheed's lead counsel, James Comey, that did not support what he was trying to do as well as his termination letter. He is the first person to use YouTube as a whistleblower. He became a lead witness at a congressional hearing, and Michael did some screen time and appeared on 60 Minutes in a documentary movie called The Whistleblowers, The War on Whistleblowers. And he eventually received the IEEE Barris Ethics Award. After being fired by Lockheed Martin, he began working in commercial IT for the past 11 years, including cybersecurity. It is during these times that he became aware that most companies in the government avoid several critical best cybersecurity practices on purpose. In one job, he discovered autonomous vehicles. Makers are using an engineering approach that will never lead them to creating an autonomous vehicle and will soon cause avoidable uh, accidents and casualties. So he'll be sharing those disclosures as well. So, Michael, uh, again, I just want to say thank you. Um, I have a couple questions, I guess, to start. Is there anything you want to add to the introduction um, that you'd like to share with our listeners? No, no, that, that, that's all good. And, and most of it's true, so that should be helpful. <laughs> okay, that's a good thing. Good place to start. 
were you one of the first questions I have for you about you know maybe about what kind of shaped your your decisions in the future is were you always passionate about technology or uh, engineering? How did you kind of develop an interest in those areas? When I was in high school, actually, uh, I knew I wanted to do electronics. And so I took uh, vocational courses in the, the 11th and 12th grade. So I actually went to a different school for, for half the day uh, because I, I knew I wanted to do electronics. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have as we talked about privately on a different call, uh, we'd spoken as something that my family really uh, is interested in as well. So um, I know it's a... It's a job that's of importance in this day and age, that's for sure. And so, and then in your, you, during your military time, that's what you did. Did you do that the entire time, work in engineering? I uh, worked actually in anti-submarine warfare. So my specialty that I had in the Navy was electronics in the communications area uh, for uh, anti-submarine warfare. We dealt with the uh, P3s that would go up. Uh, the propeller-driven airplane to stay in the air a long time, and they drop buoys basically and listen for submarines. And we worked with the shore component of that, and uh, and it was like a mini communication station actually, um, where we had um, voice communications and data communications. Uh, and then I did that. Yeah, I did that for the, the six years. My duty stations were Guam, and then my last year was on the island called Diego Garcia, which is a little little island above the equator. Um, that's south of India. People might know it be, because during the Gulf War, a lot of the, the bombing missions are run actually from David Garcia. Well, that's pretty interesting. And then at that point, you went on to work for the State Department. How did that come about? What in, and also, what did that job entail exactly? So, yeah, so I, I didn't put it in there. When I got out, I, I went back to the private sector for a little while, waiting on getting into the State Department because it took about a year and a half. I, I actually came to Pittsburgh uh, and wound up fixing TVs and stereos for a year and a half while I was um, waiting. And, and so the, the, I went into Coast Guard as a communications engineer, and what that was originally was uh, to deal with the, radio, the voice, basically telephone, radio, and digital communications, network communications for embassies and consulates. I was brought in on, on, on actually on a brand new program that was meant to to, to get people that had backgrounds in all three areas, which I did because of my Navy time. And instead of having them live near D.C. and flying out all the time and circling the globe and coming back and constant travel, they wanted to put people with these these backgrounds in all three areas. They wanted to have these people stationed throughout the world so that they would already be closer to places and, uh, and have less travel. And, and then during that time, I competed for a position on the counterterrorism group um, where I handled the the voice and digital and network communications for the counterterrorism team at the State Department. And whenever there's a counterterrorism incident, usually the State Department is in charge first. They go places, and if if it has to, it transitions to other entities in the government um, that are more military-related, and then usually it ends up with going back to the State Department and the State Department being in charge. I left this, this State Department after about a year and a half, though, because a new administration came in, and they changed the policy right back to where it was before where you would be in D.C. Uh, traveling about 70% of the time. That's, that's exactly why I did not sign up for. Um, they actually tried to give me Italy as my first station which to keep me in, which would have been great because usually you don't get, you know, somebody who's brand new in the organization, you don't, you don't have enough seniority points. So you would normally get something far, far less 
nice than Italy, but I chose not to go because I thought, well, okay, I get to Italy, and then after that, you know, I'm going to have to figure out a way, you know, to get a job back in the States. So I, I just went ahead and left. And then um, uh, after a couple months, I went to Lockheed Martin as a system engineer doing uh, simulation, aircraft simulation for the Special Ops, Air Force Special Ops, and that was in Kirtland uh, Air Force Base in New Mexico, Albuquerque. Is that something you got assigned to, is, or is that something you kind of applied for? I don't know the exact process of uh, entering a position like at Lockheed Martin. Yeah, so, uh, well, actually the position that was posted was for a, a systems engineer uh, for uh, a classified Ethernet or inter uh, Ethernet system, a networking system. So I actually went there to do that project first, which was about a year, and then I worked my way into the organization and then, and then became a system engineer on the simulation simulator side. Um, these are full motion simulators. The ones uh, usually when people see them, they're up on six, you know, up on hydraulic legs, and um, uh, they had several different helicopters and, and airplane uh, simulators there. And I was there about eight years. So I worked my way up from a system engineer to a project engineer to a project manager, um, and I was in Albuquerque for eight years, and then. Um, uh, applied for another position in New Jersey, actually, to be a project manager for the Aegis Weapon System. One of their, one of their, they have these things called baselines, which are usually multi-year projects that are around a group of ships. So let's say they have ten ships that will have the Aegis Weapon System. Aegis Weapon System is built around the Aegis radar, spy radar. It's a special radar so that they can see and track hundreds of missiles and 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 determine what to do with what to do with them. Uh, the, actually, the, the TV show The Last Ship is an Aegis Weapon ship. Oh, I see. So, and then with something sorry, else I want to doubt, I want to backtrack just a little yeah. bit. For the people that are not familiar with Lockheed Martin, can you give everybody a little information, uh, what they, what exactly it is that they do? And, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about Lockheed Martin for people who are not familiar with them. Yeah, so now they're the world's largest defense contractor. Um, if I got my history right because I went through the transition. When I first came in, actually, way back in – uh, the early 90s, I was actually in GE Aerospace who was doing aircraft simulation. And at the time, Martin Marietta bought them, and then Lockheed and bought or the Mar Martin Marietta division that was uh, basically electronics. And they have another division that does aggregates. So then, they, then that is what created Lockheed Martin. And, uh, yes, so they're the world's largest uh, defense contractor. How much would you say they get a year to develop uh, defense <laughs> tree? Oh, oh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's over 100,000 employees, and that doesn't count contractors. Um, oh, it, it's, it's, it's tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions. I, I would have to actually look it up. But it's, 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 it's obviously it's a significant amount of money because, like, for example, the, one of the largest programs they have now that, that's been in the news here and there is the F-35, um, and those are obviously extremely expensive aircraft. I see. Okay. Yeah, from what I understand, they get um, a substantial amount of money. And I wonder how that, how that came about. Do you know how they started to be contracted through the United States? Or, or are yeah. they just a part of the United States government? I just looked it up. I just looked it up. Their revenue in uh, tw 2015 actually was $46 billion. Okay, I knew it was something like that. Yeah, that's what I heard as well. Um, so were they their own corporation, and then they were contracted through the government? Is that how that works? Oh, you mean for the for the average project? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yes, for the average, usually the government has uh, 
most programs or projects are, are competitive. So the government will put out a request for proposal, and then they'll, they have a, actually a very nice open process uh, for people to compete and you know, ask questions and go around and around to try to figure out what needs to be done. Because, look, in a lot of cases, and obviously I was a whistleblower in, in, in defense, so, I mean, I probably have a couple of good reasons to be at least slightly dismissive of, of defense. But the fact of the matter is uh, most of the programs go fine. Um, and um, so in this case, uh, this was the Deepwater case, actually, which is what I did after uh, the Aegis Weapon System. So uh, it kind of goes along with the answer to your question. So while I was working the Aegis Weapon System, uh, you know, 9-11 occurred. And they, um, before 9-11 occurred, the, the government was actually working on upgrading the Coast Guard anyway, because uh, at the time the Coast Guard, our Coast Guard was, was the second oldest in the world. It was in really bad shape, and mostly because they were in the Department of Transportation. So then 9-11 came, and they uh, determined that uh, the Coast Guard should be in the new, the new Department of Homeland Security. So they, they decided that that program that they were working on bidding and, and putting together should now be accelerated and more money should be put in it because they had to upgrade the Coast Guard. So, the, the Coast, so they put that out, and then they tried something new here. So normally what happens is uh, the government's in charge, right? So the government has contractors or government employees or officers or enlisted people, whoever, whoever it is they use, the government runs the programs. They have the, finan they have the financial office, the program office, and engineering office. The government runs the programs. They hire, sub they subcontract to defense contractors who then often subcontract others. And normally, again, the government is in charge. Because of um, the fact that they, they wanted to hurry up after 9-11 and get the Coast Guard upgraded, and that is, that is pretty much everything they have, right? They either wanted to replace or upgrade every ship and aircraft that they had plus their shore stations. So they said, well, um, we can't move fast enough without more help from the contractors. So for, for the Deepwater program and, and an Army program called FCS, um, they came up with something called Lead System Integrator, which is actually where the government would turn over a lot of the control to, to, to industry, actually, because the government couldn't spin up fast enough to get enough people to work the program. So different, uh, contract, different defense contractors teamed up. Uh, in one of the cases, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed teamed up. They created a Delaware company called Integrated Coast Guard Systems, or ICGS. They were against Boeing and some others. I don't recall who all of them were. And so at the time, because of my background, and Lockheed Martin was involved in the bid, uh, I actually volunteered to help the group who was doing the proposal, who was at the same facility as the Aegis Weapon System. They, de they decided to do it out of there because Aegis Weapon System was extremely well well-respected. Um, so I, I went, and, and the, pro, the program that Lockheed was handling was something called C4ISR, which is command control, computers, communications, intelligence, surveillance, surveillance, and reconnaissance. That, that's C4ISR. So I had a background in some of that because of my Navy and State Department time, so I went to help them on the proposal. And um, after a couple of days, though, I asked them, you know, who, where, where were all the experts for some of these areas? Because there's some things I couldn't cover. And they said that they were doing it with Aegis people. And I said, well, that's not really the same kind of electronics. You need other people that do this for a living. And it turns out that they actually had people involved who were from another organization in Egan, Minnesota, who did this for a living. But they determined to take it away from them because they thought this is less complicated than Aegis, so we'll figure it out. And that was a mistake. So for three days, I tried to convince them, no, you got to go get the people who know what they're doing. I lost the argument, and they actually removed me from the, from the proposal team. 
And a year and a half later, their very first program to upgrade one one of the classes of boats called the 110s. They were 110 feet long. They were going to lengthen them to 123 feet to put these Zodiac boats on the back, but then they also wanted to upgrade all the electronics. So I was brought on, and that project was behind and over budget. So I was brought on as a system engineer, and then eventually uh, to, to get them back on track, and that's where I found the, the things that I found that were wrong on the, on the program. I see. And, and is that what exactly was the deep water? What is the program about? Did you kind of just is that what you just covered? Yeah. So deep water was the name they gave the program to upgrade the Coast Guard uh, by either replacing or adding, replacing or modifying existing right. assets. And those, those assets being planes or air, uh, helicopters, ships, whatever they needed. Right. Okay. And then also. Um, when um, you noticed that something was going on, uh, did it take a while for you to decide to take action, or what was your thought process during that time? Yes, so um, uh, they, what I needed to do is they, they were trying to deliver the system, the first, the first boat, as an as-built, which means deliver it as it is as opposed to what it needs to be. So I had to figure out where we were, what things did we do, what did we not do, and what did we partially do. And that's when it was brought to my attention, uh, the first issue was brought to my attention where um, the, uh, the radios we were putting on, on the Zodiac boats, right? So Zodiac boats, the Zodiac boats are just like what you see on TV, right? Uh, when they, they're like kind of pontoon looking boats and you know, there's air in them and there's no roof on them. And, you know, yeah. So the radio we were using was actually not waterproof, um, which, which you know, isn't, isn't the right thing to do. So uh, when I realized that that was legitimate and that was a problem, I, 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 I started looking into everything else extremely uh, carefully and found we were doing some other things wrong. Um, we were using cables that were not the correct kind of cables, and they would allow electronic signals between classified and unclassified signals to mix. And that was a problem because the government has something called CIPRNET, which is a, which is a secret internet, secret level internet. So um, if, if, if one ship or a class of ships uh, leaks information, the, the data on that channel would be anybody who's on that, who's on that Ethernet, who, I'm sorry, who's on that um, email system. So, uh, and then it was another issue. The, the Deepwater program, in addition to being a lead system integrator arrangement where the government, where the government cedes a lot of control to industry, um, it was also something called system of systems, which meant, uh, and, and a lot of this is common sense, but they wanted to have as many systems that were common across all the ships and aircraft as possible. So if they determine they need a certain radio system, they want you to, to use the exact same radio or the exact same design everywhere you can, right, for obvious reasons. So uh, because our ship was the first one, we were making design decisions that everybody else by law actually, could, by contract, would have to leverage. So if we did something wrong in our ships, they would they would actually have to match that. So, so at least, contractually at least, Every ship that had an upgrade or brand new ship or aircraft would, would, would use the wrong cables and be leaking classified information all over the world. And, and, that, and, and that's not hyperbole or an exaggeration. It's, it's what was going to happen. Right. Um, the, the other two issues were uh, the equipment that we installed on the outside of the Coast Guard vessel. None of, it, none of it would survive extreme weather conditions, which, you know, it's the Coast Guard, so it's supposed to do that. And the other one was we were installing a camera surveillance system where there were two blind spots leading up to the the bridge or or what they called the pilot house on those those small those smaller boats 
I see. Okay, and then what did you decide to do? What actions did you take other than the one so, day? So the entire time I did this, uh, I, uh, I paid extreme attention to the chain of command and to due process. Yes, and mm-hmm. you have to do that, right? Because um, I knew actually that the odds were that I wasn't going to be successful because I believe companies are not really made to do anything other than circle around the, the leader who makes the wrong decision, right? So I was already talking to people close to me in the program saying we need to fix these things, and I was being told no. And I realized uh, that um, the odds were this, I, this was not going to work out well, but I had to give the, the, the chain of command an opportunity. And there's several chains of command, right? There's, there's the engineering chain that goes all the way up to the corporate level. There's program management that goes up to the corporate level. There's quality. There's ethics. There's all these, there's all these chains of command. So, uh, I tr- you know, so you try to give your immediate, you know, the immediate group the opportunity, and then you just keep escalating from there, and obviously that takes a little, that takes a little time. But th- my observation of companies, and I've had issues with other companies, actually. I mean, I, I actually, I, I can't go into most of them, but um, I've learned that um, everything revolves around the immediate person in charge, no matter where you are. I don't care what your, your buzzwords for ethics or quality are or any of that. Um, you are no better than whoever that immediate leader is. So if that immediate leader makes the wrong decision, the entire system is constructed to support that leader uh, and, and to the point of really not even looking at the facts. It's just made that way. So once, once I saw that was happening, I knew it might be fruitless, but you have to give it a chance. So I, it took me now another year and a half to get through the chain of command all the way up to the board of directors. Wow. I see. And then what happened at that point? So... Um, so what I, what happens is, uh, so I left, right? So I went, I left New Jersey, uh, where the Lockheed, that Lockheed organization was because Lockheed's so big, like many defense contractors, they have different organizations. They're like companies within a company. So I went to another organization, which was NORAD, right? So I went to NORAD as a senior program manager, actually. And then and they asked me to take over software engineering and, and even systems engineering for a while, um, because this was after 9-11. And the nation's missile warning program needed to be upgraded, right? So NORAD does three things. Nor, oh well, four things. Okay, so it tracks Santa Claus, which is the thing I guess people, most people know. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it, it also uh, it knows what every object. Well, it knows the objects in space, right? And and it does that. It keeps track of them. One of the reasons it keeps track of them is because it, it helps NASA and others predict when they should put a, an aircraft. I'm, I'm sorry, a spacecraft in the air, because you don't want to run into one of those objects. And I, I can't go into the exact number, but, you know, people read about it in the press. There's tens of thousands of objects in space, and they're all on their own trajectory. They bump into each other. They change their path. They, they, they make little pieces. It's an extremely complex thing to keep, to keep track of. And so in addition to space objects, they, they track missile launches around the world, and they track aircraft uh, in the air. So um, the missile warning, which was obviously after 9-11 important, we needed to upgrade that. So, we, you know, we went into hurry-up mode. And I was asked to take over software engineering. Um, so during that time, I was going through the ethics process at Lockheed Martin, going, you know, going, going to one layer, and then that layer would tell me that I was incorrect. And then I went to the next layer and the next layer until eventually they, they flew me to Bethesda, Maryland, where corporate is, and we had a little conversation. And um, they told me everything was worked out with the Coast Guard, but they wouldn't prove it to me. So I told them, well, that's not, that's not good enough. 
So uh, from there, I, I wrote the board of directors, and that's when James Comey, who at the time happened to be the lead counsel for Lockheed Martin, he wrote me back a hand-signed letter and said that everything was uh, – the Coast Guard was okay with everything, and, and that turned out to not be true. Um, and But it caught up to me eventually, and after all, about 14 years, uh, Lockheed, uh, I, Lockheed terminated me in, in, uh, in 2006. And then you ended up in court. I know, I know you have to speak very generally. Um, so what actions did they take against you? So I, um, I originally tried to avoid, uh, go, you know, I tried to make every le- everything work at, at every level uh, and even telling them what I was going to do next, right? So uh, I, um, when, I, when I left the board of directors, I said, well, you know, I'm going to talk to the Inspector General of Homeland Security. So I, I contacted them. They came to see me in Colorado, and they went off to do their investigation. And they actually told me off the record on the side, the inspector general told me that the Coast Guard was stonewalling their investigation, which I wasn't expecting, right? So now you have the inspector general for Homeland Security that, that, that the Coast Guard is part of. Their own investigators are getting stonewalled by the people that I'm trying to help. So that was, I, that, that was unexpected. So and actually the entire time, um, you know, I expected Lockheed to uh, push back on me. Um, I wasn't expecting the people I was helping to push back. So that, that kind of threw me a little bit. Uh, but anyway, so um, the inspector general wasn't getting anywhere. So I contacted, before I left Lockheed Martin, actually, um, I, I contacted the press. And, and, and let me explain. I did that because um, uh, I, I had a problem with, with, with people in power who – who, uh, do, who try to do the right thing, but they do it after their security is, is completely set up. For example, the, the general, some generals had problems with, with, with uh, uh, the war, the, the second Gulf War, and they, after they retired, they came out against President Bush, and they said they didn't like what occurred. I have a problem with that. Uh, you have a responsibility to do something about that while you're in the position uh, with people under your charge. So I'm not really impressed with people who um, – who, who, who do that. So I, I wanted to make sure that I did, I did whatever I could. And at the time, Lockheed was in the process of trying to get, to try to move me out, but there's certain things they had to go through and I wasn't exactly making it easy for them. So anyway, so the inspector general said they were getting stonewalled. I went to the press. The press said, well, we know that the defense contractors do things that don't make, that aren't right, but what you're describing seems kind of, you know, even kind of out there for even them. So they wouldn't print. So that's Who did when you go I to, man? Which press outlet did you go to? Uh, I think it was the AP and Washington Post at first, I believe. Right. Um, and uh, then, so then after that is when I got the idea uh, to um, to do a YouTube video. I see. And then you posted it, and then what was the response? So I posted it, and then actually, I, I don't remember where I got this, but it was an amazing thing I found on the Internet. I found this long, this long list of email addresses for reporters, not, the, not just the organization, actual names. And so I thought, well, I'll let them know what I did, because <laughs> here was my thought. And it turned out to be true, right? But, but obviously, there was some luck and timing involved. I, um, I thought, uh, if I do something novel, Maybe that will get attention, and then by default, the issues that I, I'm trying to raise will be part of the reporting, and then we'll get somewhere. So I knew, no, I, I thought that nobody had done this yet. So I, I did the YouTube video, emailed all these people in the press, and then two weeks later, the Navy Times picked it up, 
and called me. I found out that that it was actually um, had nothing to do with my emailing anyone. That somebody in the Coast Guard saw it and alerted the reporter. The reporter called me. The Navy Times wrote a story, and then uh, and then a little while after that, the Washington Post wrote a story, and um, then that was it. And it, and it took off from there. And uh, 60 Minutes called me, and uh, and because I couldn't get anywhere, uh, I filed. Um, what is called a KETAM or a False Claims Act lawsuit uh, to try to work with the Department of Justice or for the Department of Justice, actually, uh, to uh, to fix the situation. I see. And then um, what else was happening? Were they covering it? I, I know that 60 Minutes called you, but were people reporting on this, on your whistleblowing, other than 60 Minutes? Because I'm sure there was other coverage. Yeah. Yeah, actually, there was this period in the summer of, uh, in like, yeah, August of, 20, of 2006, where for a couple of days, I was, I was interviewed by every major, every major network except Fox. Uh, so, so that was like a three or four day period, and then you know other articles come out and people rewrite about it, and um, uh, but then, like I said, 60 Minutes got a hold of me, and uh, so I, I, yeah, I figured that that was going to be very helpful that, that and then so then the congress reached out to me and to, to uh be a lead witness in a hearing that took place in the spring of 2007. i see okay and then um, i take it your family was supportive your colleagues with what was the reaction to all of this yeah um my yeah so my yeah my family's been actually very very supportive uh because this this extrapolated into me moving several times because I went from defense industry to what I call commercial IT, and it was a bad fit, uh, which, we, which we can go into later. But um, as, as bad as defense can get sometimes, again, the fact of the matter is most of the programs go fine. Uh, and the practices that they use for program management and, and, and engineering are incredible, uh, way better than the private sector, way better. Um, uh, you don't notice this because the private sector usually doesn't do anything nearly as complicated as DOD, aerospace, or NASA. And, um, um, but also the playing field is level. They're all like this. So you can't really pick anyone out because they, they're all doing or not doing the same thing. But anyway, so my family was supportive. Um, you know, there was no time when anybody countered me with anything that, that, because nobody could prove I was wrong. I, I made sure that, that I was correct about what I was saying and you have to make sure that you act professionally and, and, and don't give anyone an argument or something to use against you, right? Not that I got everything right all the time, but you don't want somebody to bring up where, you, you know, you got, you, you got really angry at some point. Or you, you don't want to give anybody anything. And at the end, I didn't. Um, Lockheed, um, basically what they said is that contractually uh, working with the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard was aware and, and okay with things. So Lockheed never came back and said that either I was incompetent or that I had, you know, personal problems, or that um, I didn't know what I was talking about. Okay. Um, did you feel uh, in any way? Well, I guess I guess I have a few, so many questions before we get out of this topic of uh, your whistleblowing. Um, did you feel blacklisted? Did you have a difficult time getting a job afterwards? Because sometimes it's going to be from their angle that they're concerned that you might be looking closely yeah. with their ethics are, or maybe they got rid of it and for other reasons were told not to hire you. So what do you thought, what did you experience? Yeah, nobody's going to hire a whistleblower. Um, I lost, I, I was never able to get back in, well, I wasn't able to get back in defense actually until about a year and a half or two years ago here with a very small company doing aircraft simulators for the National Guard. But basically, and that, there was no clearance level there. I lost my clearance because time went by. 
uh, both right. my secret and my top secret clearance. Um, nobody wants their whistleblower around, right? Because here's the thing. One is um, people think that that's what you do, all right? I, I didn't want to do that, um, and I wanted to solve it at every level along the way. Um, but I just, you know, I just decided not to drop it because I, I thought it was important not, not to drop. But, you know, I think people look at whistleblowers like, you know, you're tattletaling. Or, you know, people think, well, you know, what if we do something wrong here? This person will do something about it. <laughs> so, I, 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 you know, you're, you're not going to get another job. Uh, if you think that somebody's just going to reach out to you because of who you are and because you do the right thing, that's, pr- that's pretty naive, uh, actually. Um, I, I've learned that through all the jobs I've had, and, and maybe I'm just unlucky, I don't know, but I don't think so. I think the average person in the average company at some point does things they're not supposed to be doing. And uh, if you work in program management, uh, you are near the money, you're near schedule, and you're near the engineering. And um, you will see it. So it's just, a, it's just that, you know, there are people who are whistleblowers w- will, will go, men, keep going. Where do, the average person either won't say anything or they'll mention it to their boss, and after that they let it go. Right. Um, do you think they co- that you cost them a lot of money? Uh, well, um, let me rephrase that. I think they cost themselves a lot of money by not listening to me. So, um, and, and, and here's, so here's what happened. So um, they were removed from, from the role of being in charge of that program, and the Coast Guard took back over. But then Congress wrote laws saying that DOD and DHS can never use the lead system integrator process again so they ruined it for the entire industry. Um, there's actually a book that was done by some academics on everything that occurred in Deepwater because it was called Complex Contracting, and it goes through everything that occurred from the time that I blew the, blew the up before to the time I blew the whistle all the way through the hearings and everything that was going on behind the scenes and, 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 and how those contracts could or should have worked properly. Um, here's the thing. It, it's real simple. If that first program manager would have listened to me and done the right thing, um, I, for all, I think that Lockheed could still be in charge. Now, after the electronics issues, the boat started cracking in half, and that became an issue for Northrop Grumman. So for all I know, if that would have happened, Lockheed could have said, well, we're doing all the electronics properly, and for all I know, maybe Northrop Grumman was removed and Lockheed was still in charge, and those laws were never written to forbid defense contractors from doing having that level of responsibility or authority again. So they, they've cost themselves over the long term hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars over the long term, because when you're in charge, so so what they did is they hired themselves, right? So when the Coast Guard and DHS contracted ICGS, ICGS was a Delaware company. That Delaware company was Lockheed and Northrop. ICGS subcontracted itself. They subcontracted Lockheed and Northrop to do all the work. And so that mechanism could have been fine. Uh, And we could have been, it could have been, we could have been successful and it it would have been, you know, a, a, an excellent example of that kind of thing working, and, and they would still be doing it, doing it today. Yeah. Well, so it did, it did create a change. You were a catalyst for change. Uh, yeah. What happened is they changed the designs on the uh, – well, actually, they, were, they stopped that entire project because the first eight boats cra- were cracking. So uh, they stopped that project. And, but uh, all the issues that I raised, electronics, were, were, were uh, changed so that they, w- they would be done correctly on future, future projects or programs that the Coast Guard did, regardless of, of what ship it was or aircraft. Okay. And then, let's see, 
one final question on Lockheed Martin. Where were there other concerns? I mean, I, I know it's such a huge uh, company, uh, such a large uh, contracting company. So I'm just curious if there were other things you knew. It, I would I would take it that it's very compartmentalized, as you mentioned earlier. You kind of indicated that. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think um, like in a lot of things that get to be controversial, including politics. Um, I look at, I try at least to look at things case by case, item by item, and don't get all hung up in sides. So, uh, so I'll tell you, in my 14 years at Lockheed, my first eight years in, in, in aircraft simulation for special ops, I thought people did a fantastic job, uh, and, and 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 their intentions were the right thing, right? So that's important. Right. So that was great. Um, when I worked the Aegis Weapon System, the Aegis Weapon System is amazing. Uh, it was, uh, it, it had a great rep- still has a great reputation. Um, and then when I went to NORAD, everybody was doing the right thing that, as far as I could tell NORAD. So uh, it, to me, it, it all comes down to the, the, the person being in charge. And the fact of the matter is HR everywhere and ethics everywhere and quality, those organizations are built to reactively protect management. So as soon as management makes the wrong call, unless they go running through the halls with an ax with no clothes on, um, odds are the system is going to react to protecting them. And as soon as that happens, it's incredibly difficult to break that bond. I see. Okay. So I guess that was a long uh, learning, you know. It sounds like it was a really interesting journey. And uh, But, you know, even though it was difficult to do and you still had to deal with the repercussions, you know, some things did change. Yes. The, uh, well, the, the defense contractors will never be in charge again, and uh, all the issues that I raised were not on any any, any of the future assets of the Coast Guard. So, yeah, I, uh, yes. Uh, now, during the, the whole thing, and it gets complicated in the way that the False Claims Act worked, I settled, uh, we settled with the defense contractors. Um, uh, some of it, uh, um, where I received some money, uh, but then there was another part of the case that was not settled. It went to... Um, um, to appeal, I lost the appeal. They they came after me uh, financially, and I wound up filing bankruptcy, both because of Lockheed and Northrop coming after me, but also because of some mistakes I made on my own. Um, so there, yeah, so it was difficult. It was the, the moving around and um, and, and the bankruptcy. Uh, did you ever meet a lot of the people, the whistleblower community? Are you connected with any of those people? Uh, no, I don't know. Um, I didn't have the best. I didn't have the best experience with that community. I, um, at first, you know, I went to projects on go, I went to projects on government oversight, and at first they gave me real, they gave me bad advice, which later they figured out and apologized for. But um, and then I, you know, I went to NSWC, I think it is, or some other organization, and they just weren't to me. They weren't very helpful. I, I, I was very on my own. Um, hence, well, what were they claiming the, they could do for you, or what do they claim? Well. They they wouldn't help me. So I mean, I know they can't help everybody. Uh, so, right. but you know, I don't remember the lady's name. But with one of the groups, she said she was going to do certain things and bring me to D.C. and do a press conference and all these things were going to happen. And then it didn't. And it was a waste of my time. Um, so, but but in their defense, they are nonprofit organizations that have to get money from somewhere. So and they and they have helped people. So maybe it was just just a bad experience uh, for me. But I, I basically, you know, I did it on my own. Uh, it, it, the, the catalyst clearly was the YouTube video and, and the press, and you know, and then, and then it just snowballed. 
And uh, so uh, my only my advice to anybody who, who thinks they want to, you know, whistleblow is, 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 is a couple things. One is, first of all, odds are you're going to lose. It, it, it's just how it is because um, it's just how it is. However, if you're going to pursue it and you, and, and you make the assumption that, that, that it's going to be hard for you, then, and I do want to encourage people. I do like to encourage people to whistleblow, um, maybe just in a way that they can protect themselves. You know, I just think that it's so important as citizens to stand up to injustices. And also, I mean, lives can be lost. I mean, this is like life or death, and it's the right thing to do. You know, it's, a, it's about character and moral, you know, your value system and keeping, you know, citizens safe around the world oftentimes. So, okay, so I agree with you up to the point of it's very easy to say. So, yes. um, so I, I, if people are going to do it, you have to be willing to try everything, to stay engaged, to operate at 110%, and to not give them anything, right? It's, gonna, it's tough. You have, to, you have to make sure that you are professional. You, you, can, you can never um, – you, you can't lose your cool. You can't do anything that anybody can, can, can use against you. And you have to be right. Um, but, like, you know, again, and then to me, you go to the press. You just keep going and going and going. And, look, the world, there's so much going on in the world that the fact of the matter is the degree to which something is handled in this country is, is directly proportional, proportional to several things. One, it, well, how newsworthy it is, right? So the depth and breadth of the news coverage usually determines the depth and breadth of uh, action by Washington or anybody else. So the YouTube thing worked, 60 minutes hit, boom, right? So now, I, so I'm an example of the point that I'm trying to make. I would imagine that most whistleblowers, um, they, they don't get that kind of traction for whatever reason. Either they don't try it or it doesn't work for them or whatever. Um, uh, but, yeah, you have, to, you have to assume you're going to lose. You have to, you have to figure out a way to be okay with that. Like, I, there, there's things I regret. I've made mistakes along the way. There's clearly things I would do differently. Um, I, and I would help whistleblowers to this day, right? I would help. To, to the best of my ability to help them, you know, navigate through this, through this minefield. Um, but, uh, but if they were not of a per certain personality type, for example, um, then, then I wouldn't even try it because if you are introverted and you don't have just, you're just not like, you know, just something in your personality is not lined up for this. Don't even take a crack at it because it's very difficult for people to be good at something that, 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 uh, that puts them at odds with themselves. Right. But eventually you did receive the IEEE Barris Ethics Award. So you were awarded um, for that. And, I mean, I know it's just an award, but it says something. Yeah, it was nice. I, w I went to D.C. to do it, and um, uh, Congressman Cummings, who's still in office, um, um, presented it to me in D.C. Nice. Yeah, I'd like to hear things like that. You know, I know it is a tough road to do to do the right thing sometimes, but I just appreciate people who do. And that's why I do what I do, because I, um, I feel privileged and honored to, to be associated with whistleblowers because I just know how hard it is. And I've done that on a very small level, but it is a fight, and it takes a lot of fortitude, and you find out what you're made of during those times and those battles that you have to go through. And, you know, and to this day, you know, I'm still personally fighting some of the things that I have had to, the repercussions of, of trying to disclose information, as well as many whistleblowers um, on a much larger scale like yourself, 
So, you know, I'm very appreciative to people like you, and that's why I do what I do is trying to find a place to showcase and and um, kind of uh, an homage to whistleblowers. So, And so I guess then let's kind of progress. So at that point, you know, you went out into the work world, as you mentioned, as we were discussing earlier, and you got back into the work field, and, and let's pick up back from there. Um, right before I get to that, let me let me support your point about people whistleblowing, though. Um, clearly, if more people did the right thing, we wouldn't need whistleblowers, right? Because they would just be called people. And yes. um, so, so to me, right? And I and I'll say this because I'm not an I'm not an armchair quarterback in this case. Um, if if you don't if you don't do the try to do the right thing, or at least call it for what it is, then to me, you're enabling. All right. It just this is how it is. And to me, it's very black and white. You are either trying to stop it or anything else is you, you, you are enabling. And to me, to some degree, you're an accomplice. So like, like now with all this Me Too thing coming out, right, and all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodwork. Uh, I understand why women, women didn't say anything, okay? Um, uh, however, the fact of the matter is, is what you're seeing occurring now uh, is what very well could have happened years back uh, had the same thing occurred. And obviously social media is important, right? Because without, I mean, without the internet, I wouldn't have got anywhere. Because I, I, I was emailing people. I mean, I, I was, I mean, I did amazing things from, 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 from an old computer sitting in a room somewhere. <laughs> so uh, to me, the internet is a, is a massive equalizer. It, 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 it gives you power uh, against these, uh, the people doing wrong. That, that's amazing, right? Because if you're right, you're already way ahead of them because now they're stuck. And if you have data to prove it, and 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 you have the internet. It's it's just uh, it 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 uh it's an excellent I guess weapon to have in your in your arsenal. Because I, I can't imagine what whistleblowers. I mean, a long time ago. I mean, Ellsberg and all the rest of them who were doing something. I mean, it was the press, but they, you know they had to do a lot of things over the phone or with a letter. Yeah, I agree. The internet can make things happen really quick. And you and and like someone that was maybe part of the Me Too movement you feel strength, the strength in numbers, and you're going online and you're seeing some of these social media um, posts and comments and, that are supporting uh, the Me Too movement, and it just kind of ticks off like wildfire. It starts to trend, and, and all the people who maybe didn't say anything because they were scared or felt like the only one or just knew that they were trying to fight an entity so much larger than themselves or people with so much more power and money, you know, and all of a sudden they see other people are doing it, you know, and so it becomes, right. you feel like you finally have a voice. And so uh, yeah, I'm a big uh, proponent for the Internet and um, and its, its ability to support people who are trying to disclose and share information that needs to be addressed. Um, so to get back, before I pulled you back and to go forward, so I, I left defense and went to what I call commercial IT. So that's, ba you know, I, I call commercial IT basically anywhere anybody makes software um, that is not DOD or aerospace or NASA. And the reason I differentiate that is because there are practices, engineering and project or program management practices, that those, those DOD aerospace and NASA, they use that are, that are excellent. Uh, and and ba other than like IBM, uh, in, in, in the commercial sector, nobody does these things. So I thought that I had this excellent bag of tricks uh, when uh, I went out and all these things I could do because I didn't know this at the time. And it turned out that I, it was tough because I'm an extroverted person. I'm, en I'm energetic, right? So if you take somebody with, a bag, with, with experience who's extroverted, what are they going to try to do? 
they're going to try to use that. So um, right away, the companies I worked for had no interest, no interest whatsoever. I mean, the, the way that most commercial companies that make software especially, whether the software they sell it or it's in, for internal use for the business that sells some other product, um, they, they barely monitor project success and, 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 and schedule and cost and, and all of that. And, and, it's, and you don't find out about it. Um, because there's no reporting requirement like there is for, for government entities a lot of times. Uh, and because the playing field is even, they all do the exact or don't do the exact same thing. So it, it's just nobody's, any, nobody can capitalize on anybody else because they're all basically at the same low point. Um, and thank God that they don't, a lot, most of the stuff that they make is not incredibly difficult, uh, or at least com, you know, it, as complex as a lot of things NASA and DOD do. Um, and, and aerospace, nor, nor does it impact as many people's lives a lot of times. I see. And then, you know, we were, you know, chatting on the phone the other day, and you had, you know, you'd been, when did you get the job as a software project manager? So I was, a manage, I was managing software engineers all the way back in Lockheed. So when I first started as a project, as a project engineer doing aircraft simulation, I had software developers and systems engineers working for me then. So uh, let me explain real quick system engineer because the the two different worlds use that term differently. In the commercial IT world, uh, th 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 that job is actually split up by two different other uh, uh, jobs. Somebody called a business analyst and somebody who's called QA, which is really QC, but anyway, it's testing. So the com commercial IT world has one person who knows the scope or what you're supposed to be doing and then somebody else who tests. Well, in DOD Aerospace and, and NASA, they do differently, uh, which I think is actually far better. The, the person who knows what to do uh, is also part of the testing to make sure they get what they asked for. So there's continuity there. Anyway, so, um, so I, I, had, I had been involved managing or working with software engineers all the way back to like, you know, 1994 or whatever. So I just went into the private sector and picked right up with being a project manager and with software developers. Okay. And then, you, you know, we were going to share a couple of disclosures. Do you want to go into the first one? The one, uh, the privileged account security issues. Yeah. So, be, yeah. So, because of my experience in in DoD and aerospace, um, and then working in cybersecurity, not only in in uh, again DoD, but in the commercial sector, um, I've come to to find out that, and I I know this is how it's going to sound, but it 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 it's accurately accurate and actually easy to prove. The vast majority of organizations, and I'm talking about every organization, including on the government side, literally avoids, avoids several critical cybersecurity practices, and they do it on purpose. Now, I'm not such a conspiracy theorist that I'm telling you they avoid it on purpose so we can be hacked. That's not the case. They avoid it because in order to, to, to implement some of these things, they would have to admit that they have all these other incredibly bad practices uh, admit that they have them and then actually and then fix them. And because there's no laws that mandate, well, there's, there's, there's few laws, let me say that. There's few laws that mandate that you do very, very specific things for cybersecurity that they take a chance with the hack, right? So there are laws around, uh, around some healthcare, health data and laws around um, um, like credit card data. But the problem is, is uh, they make the assumption that um, the commercial sector is going to do the right thing. Look, um, not to get into the whole Republican-Democrat thing, but the fact of the matter is people are good or bad everywhere. And, and the fact, and, and people saying, well, government messes things up, 
uh, the private sector does better is, is just as much nonsense as the reverse. It's just people. And I, I would defy anybody to tell me any industry that has ever actually done true best practices that wasn't forced to by the government. Because the commercial sector is not going to spend money on something that they don't have to if it, if it doesn't directly help them in the sale of the product or it's in the product that they sell. And the fact of the matter is, and a lot of businesses won't admit this in public, but they actually prefer when the government writes detailed regulations because it evens the playing field. So now they all have to spend the money to do it. On that so note, guys, the, hold on one second, Michael. Sorry about that. We've got to go to a station break. So hold on, guys. We'll be right back with Michael DeCourt. Okay, so we'll give it like 30 seconds, and then we're going to edit in the right. break. Okay. Am I not letting you in enough? Oh, yeah, you are. You're doing great. Okay. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Well, welcome back. We're here with Michael DeCourt, and I'm going to turn it back over to you, Michael. Let's pick up where we left off. Thank you. So, uh, all right, so one of the key best practices that no, hardly anybody uses, and when I mean hardly anybody, so here's the thing. There are companies that sell products that help you do the thing I'm going to describe, which is privileged account management, okay? Um, I worked for the leader in the space as well as I know other companies. On average, of the, of the organizations that even buy the products to help them do this, 1% or less actually use them so, or use them even remotely properly, meaning they buy them so I guess everybody thinks they're doing something, and then they slow roll them for de literally for decades and never really do them so that maybe the board of directors is fooled. I'm not entirely sure. So one of the key ones is privilege account management. All that means is, is every device, whether it's, uh, for example, a laptop or a PC or a server, whatever it is, and everybody knows this from their own laptops or PCs, there, you have privileges or an administrative account, meaning you, have, you can do things. You, you, you either have read and write or, or read privileges. Okay? So all this does is, is a system to make sure that the people who are supposed to have privileges do and that they're doing the right things with them and, 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 and minimizing the amount of power that they have if they can. I mean, if you're a very small business with one or two people, it's, it's, it's different. But what privilege account management does is it, it does a couple things. One is you have to know where all your laptops and PCs are, which a lot of companies don't, especially the laptops. And then you don't want to have them set up so that uh, the employees can actually make changes. I know it's a hassle for employees, but you don't want to give them privileges. And the reason why is because what happens more often than not is about 23% of spam attacks are actually successful. So that means if you have five people in, in your company, you're going to be attacked by spam. So what happens is they get in and spam to a laptop, and because that laptop has administrative privileges for the, for the person using it, they can navigate into a server, and now they, just, now they just start moving around inside the system. So you want to know where those are. You want to lock out those privileges, and um, you also want to minimize the amount of power people have, right, or privileges. So if you have a bunch of different systems, you don't want to give one person the ability to get in and do what they want everywhere. And Do you have this other, here I noticed? Sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to see. Is this part of the list? It's, you basically have uh, a numbered list, and you're kind of telling people what, what they should be doing to protect security? Yeah. Because yeah. I noticed uh, yeah. here it's like least privilege, endpoint protection. So we're kind of go, we're yeah. reviewing that? Uh, yes. I was, well, I was using yes, my list to make sure I didn't skip something. Um, uh, but, but anyway, so there, these, these organizations – 
they don't use these tools or use this practice. And the reason why they don't is because they have some incredibly large skeletons in their closet that they would have to admit exist and fix. I'll tell you what those are. So what happens is um, these companies will have, on average, four times the amount of privileged accounts set up than there are people who can even use them. So what happens is somebody comes in a company, you, 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 you give them the ability to go certain places in the system and do certain things, and then you're supposed to keep track of that. So if somebody else comes in who needs the same privilege, you give them the same type of account that the last person had. But because they don't keep track of it, they just keep adding them. And then people go away and they're contractors and they, and they get lost, right? So now you have laptops all over the place. They have privileges on those laptops. You have people that are running around, um, uh, they're, are outside the company and they, their accounts still exist. Or another thing that they do is people actually, because this is amazing, but they'll put passwords in, 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 in code, in the software. So if there's a system that requires a password to do something, instead of having a routine that goes and gets a password that changes all the time and uses it, they hard code the password inside of the, inside the, the system. Um, so, so much so that I had one company tell me that, that they're not going to change those passwords because they've been there for 10 years and they're afraid something will break. That's absolutely insane. Um, another problem that they have is People will write passwords down in emails and put them on spreadsheets that aren't protected, so you have to clean that up. Uh, so there's these, these, these issues that occur, again, in the background that nobody wants to admit exist because they don't want to clean them up, so they go ahead and they take a chance with the hack because the law does not mandate that they, they, they deal with the things that I've described here. Okay, I see. But what about the people who are the governing bodies and the regulators? Did you touch upon that? and Did I miss that? Or, yeah. Um, so yeah, so the governing bodies and regulators don't do this stuff either. Um, they're not. If you, look, if, if you look at every single hack, basically, that's ever occurred, uh, somewhere they'll mention that somebody got a privileged account, right? You, the reason why this is so important is because if you don't have permissions on a system to do something, then you can't do it, right? So... People will point to, like, uh, uh, you have to update your patches because this certain patch caused a problem. Okay, yes, you have to update your patches. But the fact of the matter is, is if you don't have system permissions, you can't really do anything, even if there is a patch problem in a lot of cases. So it's really the keys to the kingdom. What you really want to do is you want to make sure that, that not one person has the main key, if you can help it, or, and you spread that around to minimize the risk. And you want to make sure that people two-factor sign-in. I mean, the system is supposed to make sure you, you know, they know who you are and then have two ways of signing in to help, to help avoid you know, a bad actor getting in. Um, and then you want to monitor what people do. So let's say an employee decides from the inside to sabotage you. If you have this set up properly, first of all, they'll, they'll have minimum things that they can get at and do. And even if they go do them, as soon as they try to go anywhere they're not allowed to go, the system should be monitoring that and giving an alert saying, hey, Bobby went off and he's in a different server that he's not supposed to be in, and it would figure that out. So there's all these layers, and, and none, of them are, none of them are being used because, again, nobody, put, nobody puts the majority of these practices into play. It's so bad. It's so bad that um, uh, Carnegie Mellon University has a group uh, that's called CERT. I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's basically the, uh, the academic wing of, of, of Department of Homeland Security to help understand what the best cybersecurity practices are, okay? So I wanted to see if they actually, if, if what they thought of this, this area, privileged account management. I went to them, and I found out that that organization farms out their cybersecurity to the universities. 
And then I went to the university, and the university said, we're not doing any of this, right? So here is the government's academic institute who's supposed to be telling everybody the right thing to do, and they're not doing any of it. So yeah. it's, 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 to, me, to me, it's a, it's, a nas it's a national security problem. It's a massive national security problem that, to me, is not going to get solved unless somebody writes a law that says you will do these very, very detailed things at a minimum. Because you can't give people an out. Because here's what happens. They, they write a law because, you know, they, they buy into this thing that the government should stay out of the private sector. Okay, fine. Um, so they write a law that's general. They say, like, do the best here. Well, the problem is you don't define what best means. So everybody looks for loopholes and does exactly the least amount they can to satisfy something. So if you don't put out, do these things that are very actionable uh, and defined, then they won't do them. Yeah, that seems to happen in a lot of areas, in a lot of different companies. Yes. Well, what about us as personal computer, you know, users and and mm -hmm. and things that home offices or people that are running small businesses? What can we do as individuals and company owners to protect ourselves? Good question. So here's the thing: um, it takes work, and and um, it's unfortunate because. If other things in people's lives were as much of a hassle to deal with as all the things going on in your computer, like if your car, if you had to deal with the amount of stuff in your car that you have to deal with with, with the computer, um, you would go nuts. Um, it's actually amazing to me, uh, and there's, I'm sure there's a reason, by why there isn't a business where somebody provides you a service and you get the device with it, right? Like if you want cable TV, you don't, you, normally you don't buy the router and, 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 and the cable box you buy channels and, and machines show up. I actually think for most people there should be a service that provides the hardware to you and you sign a contract and the, the, everything is done for you um, uh, so that you don't have to worry about that and, and you just do what you need to do. But because that doesn't basically exist, you have to know all these different things. And the problem is um, to resolve it all, you, you need to wind up using different types of software from different companies at some point. So. Um, one thing is, is backups. So this is a, an area where a lot of people really get confused, and it's because of the terminology in the industry. When you do a backup, people think everything is being backed up, and it's not. The, a normal backup is just your personal data. It's documents, videos, uh, music. It's that. It's not your operating system, and it's not the software you've loaded on your computer. Now, that used to not be as big of a deal because you would get you know, your operating system, whether it was Mac or Windows, you would get a disk. So if you lost your computer and, and you, 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 could, you could load the operating system again. But again, that doesn't have all the other software. So what you really need is something called an image. Right? An image is the exact replica of everything on your drive, every single bit and byte. What are two reasons why you want to do? A couple of reasons you want to do that. One is because you can, you, if you, if your hard drive goes bad, you can restore your computer if you get another drive. Or if there's a virus or something happens, and it happens after you made your last backup, you can reformat your your hard drive and start from scratch, and you won't have the virus anymore. And it solves the issue of you getting stuck because you don't have the operating system anymore because now they don't even sell the disk. So uh, you really want to have a system by which you uh, keep your images, and I would recommend, you know, an external drive 
Don't leave it connected to your computer all the time because that's not going to be very, very helpful because if you do get a virus, it's going to go into that drive. So when I do it, um, I have a program that will, it notices the changes since the last time you did it. It only updates for the changes. I disconnect that drive. And I actually have a little safe, uh, they're not that expensive, uh, that, that's water and fireproof, and I keep it in there just in case something happens. So, so I have that. Um, you, you also want to have, um, there, and there's several vendors out there, but you want to have, have the obvious stuff. You want to have a firewall and antivirus. Um, and you do want to keep up on updating your software and your computer, which, again, I realize is a hassle, right? Uh, I would actually create a list of things to do uh, and, put a, and have a calendar for yourself and have it pop up and annoy you and tell you when you need to do certain things um, because you just have to keep up with it. Um, so you get antivirus or fire, uh, firewall protection. Now you need protection to get for Internet of Things. All these Internet of Things are a nightmare. Most of them uh, are easily hacked. And there are products out now, um, uh, most of them are devices, that go between your world and your home or your business and the outside world being the router. And um, they, they help pr provide another layer of firewall and help protect and, and actually encrypt your, 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 uh, your uh, Internet of Things because it's incredibly easy to hack in uh, to, to most of these Internet of Things devices, which, and, and which is the reason I don't have any. And one um, of the things I wanted to point out that you and I, in the article that you had sent me prior to the interview, um, you had mentioned, you know, that I just wanted the, the audience to know, to be aware that your cloud data, including your emails over the past six months, are not protected by the Fourth Amendment. And I actually didn't know that until you shared that article, so that's something I wanted to bring up. And what can we do in that case? Yep. So yeah. So okay. So it's actually emails over six months old, and uh, and cloud data. So here here's the problem. And 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 I've I've to me this would if I was an attorney or somebody in healthcare this would just freak me out I guess um, is because the laws are written to protect your property because the cloud is not your property uh, your your data is not protected uh, uh, by the Fourth Amendment so there's no warrant required for the government to get it just like as if you kept your data in your neighbor's house. So, um, and, and Congress has a bill that it wrote, but it hasn't it's never passed to, to actually make it so that emails over six months old are, are protected. Uh, and then just today, actually, they passed that surveillance act. So I don't see anybody fixing this. Um, I think there, well, the way to fix it for cloud vendors, I think, is if they went to a mechanism where they sold you a portion of property like the server, that it could be considered your property and you'd be protected. I, I don't know if that's a fix or not. I'm not. I'm not an attorney. But on your own side, I don't use the cloud. Well, I use it a little bit for my iPhone, um, but I don't use the cloud. I don't do any cloud backups, um, and I surely wouldn't do one with a, with a, with, a, with a cloud vendor who doesn't uh, encrypt my data and who also doesn't monitor anything, right? Because here's the problem: is if um, it, is if, if they can't touch your data. Then, then, then um, they can't uh, honor the warrant. But, but for backup vendors, I mean, for cloud vendors that, that do your backups for you, well, you're, you're kind of stuck. Which, so, which is why you want to definitely have an encryption mechanism where that encryption key or the code, basically, for that encryption, you have it and only you have it, not the cloud vendor. Uh, here's another thing that I, you and I didn't go into that I know most people aren't aware of. The law, the, the, uh, the police can force you to unlock your phone with your face uh, or with a thumbprint, not with you punching in the number, the number code on your phone. Because the law is written 
to protect your mind from being violated by the government, not your body. So the, the police can force you to put your thumb on your phone, and they can clearly hold the new phones that are doing fa- facial ID up to your face and unlock your phone. Oh, so they found a loophole. Yep. And I guess, you know, so, and also we were even discussing about this cloud technology. Technology is advancing so quick, and it takes so much time to get anything yeah. to pass and, and, and to yeah. put any protective measures. So that that's, yeah. therein lies a big issue, I believe. Yeah, I'd like to know really why somebody, even these vendors who put out these systems that help you with all this Internet and, and protection with antivirus and all that, I don't understand why they don't get together, create a consortium, and sell you a system so, and, and, and so that everything comes bundled. So all you have to do is, make, you know, is, is go through that with them. They ask you what you want to do. I, I, you know, I want to create documents. I want to do music. I want to do video. Whatever it is you want to do, like you're getting your cable modem and provide you that service because it's an incredibly – it's a giant hassle. Um, and that actually – there was actually one other thing that uh, – oh, VPN. So another thing is, is when you are on the Internet, um, you're being tracked constantly. Even at, Now, there are some, like, do not track features um, on, on, on some of the browsers, but they still know who you are. So they, um, you can get something called a VPN, which a lot of people have for work. So a VPN is a virtual private network. What that means is, for example, I would install software on my computer with a VPN provider that creates uh, encryption between me and that company. And what happens is they act as a middleman. So I communicate between me and that, that, that VPN provider, which could be anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and actually having your, having, doing it with Europe can make a lot of sense because they have better privacy laws. But um, they, um, they, they, they then communicate with the, the, the other side that you were originally communicating with. So it slows things down a little bit, but it puts somebody in between you and, um, and, and where you're going. And um, it's not perfect because, as I understand it, your MAC address for your machine can, can, can sometimes be found. It's not perfect. And also there's the Onion router or, or the Tor system, right, or the dark web. As I understand, yeah. that, was, that was hacked by CMU, that same CERT organization I talked about either earlier. So I don't you – know, now there's some other tools that, 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 that are out there that I'm, I'm not exactly familiar with, but the average person is not going to use that can make you pretty safe, right? To your point, when Ed, uh, Edward Snowden, he clearly knows what those are. The thing is, the average person, is not, it's just not going to happen. Unless, again, unless somebody creates a product suite or an environment where all that comes bundled. Um, like, for example, uh, there's a company that I know that's coming out using blockchain technology that's actually going to try to use blockchain on our existing Internet, but a, 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 in a way that it's classified, you know, uh, encrypted between you and whoever you're talking to, and nobody in between can possibly do anything with it because blockchain is, is actually is pretty safe. So if you layer these protection schemas, it makes it, incredi- it makes it much more difficult for somebody to track you. Now, somebody could say, well, why, why do I care if somebody tracks me? I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, okay, fine. If, but if you, want, if, you, if you want people to know what, you know, what your, your financial situation is or, your, or, or things that are wrong with your health or your kids or whatever, um, you know, if, if, I mean, you, you just have to imagine every type of information you have, how could somebody possibly use that or compile that? Um, you know, people are worried that that information will get out there or it's already out there with jobs. What if, th- if people are buying that information and you don't get a job because they find out you have some, some health ailment? And they go with a different candidate because because of that, right? So um, I, it just seems to me there's there's a balance here. Uh, I want the government to protect us, um, but the fact of the matter is the government can't get to your mail without a warrant, right? They can't get to your letters in your mailbox without a warrant. 
So there's got to be some, you know, some area in there to where uh, it's not as easy as it, as it currently is. And, you know, in my opinion, too, just to go back a little bit, what we were just discussing is, you know, it's like letting – some people say they don't mind that um, that they have nothing to hide. But the point is it's like letting someone into your house. You have your family pictures. You have your life in there and, and right. these important documents. So I think it's just a violation, period. I grew up in a time where that was not acceptable. And to this day, I still feel like it's just appalling to me. That is my private – belongings and you know we can't get used to the fact that we're being surveilled and watched and that Google's gathering data on us. I, I just I'm not going to accept that as a way of life and I hope no one else will too. It, it, it's a two-way street right because there are these, these, these communications like WhatsApp well actually I just saw WhatsApp can actually be invaded by a third party but there are these uh, applications that allow you to communicate uh, securely and clearly terrorists use those and um, you know, the NSA and the FBI, it, it, it makes it very difficult for them to do their jobs or if they can't get into a phone. So, um, uh, you know, there, there's give and take there. Uh, it, it just, I, I just think right now um, uh, you, should have to, you should have to get a warrant, and, and um, that, that's just where I, I personally come down on it. Okay. And then what are some of the big companies that have been hacked? And do you think hacking has increased over the years? Oh God! Uh, you, here's this. Well, Yahoo. Every they admitted recently that all three billion of their, I think three billion of their, every everybody's going to get hacked. I mean, literally, almost everybody will get hacked or has been hacked because of these these cybersecurity practices that they skip. It's 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 almost easy to do it. So it's so here's the thing: companies or individuals have to look at this two ways, and normally they look at it one way or the other, which is wrong. Either they look at it like. Um, Let's protect against getting hacked, and then they don't think about the fact that they, they probably will. Or there's other people who don't do any, you know, who go the other way and uh, assume they're going to, and, 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 and on the other side, only take those precautions. To me, what you should do is there's best practices, so you, you can minimize the ability for you to get hacked. You should do those things. But you should also assume you're going to be hacked. Because if somebody really, really works hard at it, they're going to get in. I mean, just look at the spam thing. There are spam filters, okay, but the study I saw said 23% of, of spam attacks are successful. If that's the case and you have more than five employees, at some point something's going to happen. So you need to have systems that, that don't make it easy to make it incredibly difficult, but then you also need, like the system I described, if you assume you're going to be hacked, then you have a way to minimize that damage and to take control of the situation. So you should be doing both, which is why in your private life, if you make the assumption you're going to be hacked, that's why you have that image. That's why you keep up to date with that stuff. Because if you do all the other things you're supposed to do with all these tools and antivirus and, and, and firewalls and all that stuff, if you make the assumption that someday that's, that's not going to work for whatever reason, or if for no other reason, then the fact of the matter is your hard drive could go bad. I mean, I mean, so there's other reasons to do it. But if you keep up to date on your image, uh, so now you're doing both parts, making it difficult for someone else, but also making the assumption that over, over several decades, I'm probably going to get hit one time, and, um, and, and, and you take care of that. And I remember seeing, um, maybe it was about six years ago, I was very shocked that Equifax was hacked. It, it just well, yeah, no it just, it, no, it just happened. And, and the joke about Equifax getting hacked, uh, um, the, jo the joke about them is, is um, they uh, they turn you over to, to Life Alert, who um, uses Equifax for their data. Hmm. 
So, right, so you go to companies like Life Alert to help you protect your identity and restore it, and then you find out that they're using, you know, they have to. They go to one of the big three credit bureaus to, to, to get to deal with the data. So it's just a mess. It's just an absolute mess. Yeah, just like we, I was telling you in our, our previous discussions how we were using, you, we were talking about firewalls, and I used that Russian one. What was the name of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Kaspersky. I used to actually have it years ago, and then, until I realized it was Russian, and then I got rid of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then come to find out, we, we found out that they were sharing or taking our information. It was being used in Russia. Do you know on what level or how that was, what was exactly they were trying to, to gather, what type of information? I don't think that they would spend the time, um, or the you know, or spend the, the, or use the resources for the average person, um, because. But here's the thing: our government was using Kaspersky, <laughs> so um, the DHS actually last year last year mandated that everybody get rid of it. Yeah, so I do. I, mean, I am skeptical about firewalls. I feel like I'm always afraid that they're taking our get that they are gathering our information that they yeah. are reaching. Because in a way they are. They're legally. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So if you use, if you use a VPN vendor, for example, uh, who's, who's, who, who, who gets you know encrypts your data on your computer so they can send it to themselves so that they can they can be the middleman. If they're tracking you, your host. You're right. It's a horrible situation. Um, here's the thing: is if you don't do anything, I you know so it's just incrementally better. Um, I try when I go off to look for products. I actually go and, and research uh, everywhere I can, and I try to find as many organizations who have tested things as possible and, and, and review, you know, uh, reporters or, or other places, and I try to find products where I can cross-verify that, that it seems like they're pretty squared away because there, there's the best you can do, right? There's the, there's the most due diligence you can do, and that's pretty much it. What about protecting their cars? Because, you know, when we go in, um, you know, we have kind of a, a newer car, and it wants to gather the information from your phone. Is there a way to protect that information? Yeah, the car is really tough. I mean, well, that could actually get into, the, I guess, the, the segue to the next topic. But um, the, the, the car That was my are, point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. So, um, I, uh, yeah, the cars are tough because uh, you don't have access. Uh, and to me, it's even worse, right, because, like, for example, Tesla. Uh, Tesla is constantly grabbing data from your car, but they won't give it to you. So the, the way the laws are right now, that's not your data. And I don't, I don't, I think that's wrong. I, I think um, uh, it should be your data, and also just from a safety standpoint, and to make sure that these companies aren't doing the wrong thing, especially after an accident. I would treat this car data, especially for autonomous vehicles, just like uh, the NTSB does with air travel. Uh, when there's an accident, um, that data. Uh, goes right to the black box, goes right to uh, the NTSB. Um, the problem is in these cars, and it, and it was one of the issues with the Joshua Brown issue with the gentleman who, lo who lost his life uh, a while back uh, in a Tesla car. Um, those Let's go back a little bit and give a little more history on the Tesla okay. vehicle, if that's okay right. with you, unless you want to make a yep. point, and we, then we can go back to that. And uh, yeah, let, yeah, let me finish that. Yeah, let me finish that. Yes, let me finish that thought. Because sure. it, it's, it's the overlap to, to, to data privacy or security. So um, Tesla, at least then, and I still think now, didn't update their didn't get data updates often enough to recreate an accident. Right. So Tesla was saying, well, we don't have data from certain crashes because we didn't get the data because the crash was so bad. 
that, that, that it ruined our black, it ruined our data system on the car. And they don't update from the car often enough to gather all the data. So they said they, they, don't get, they didn't get the right data from the accident because it happened so fast. To me, that's just reckless. Um, you have to have one or both things. Either have a real black box in that car that will survive a crash and a fire and, and, a, and, and a water submerging, like a black box in an aircraft. And or you have to update, you have to get data updates on what's going on many times a second so that um, you don't miss anything. Um, but, okay, so that, that's now my, so segueing into the autonomous vehicle thing. Uh, I should probably explain first how it is I, I, I was involved in the DOD thing with Homeland Security. Then, all, then somehow I knew something about cybersecurity and then why I'm involved in autonomous vehicles now as well. Sounds um, good. Let's do that. So uh, because of my time in aircraft simulation and, what, and the things that we did uh, in aerospace, and because of my time spent in, in, in commercial IT, and I see how they do things in their engineering standards and practices, which are horrible. Um, when I saw the process that these autonomous vehicle makers are using, most of them um, are using, uh, it was very clear to me that the process they're using will literally never create an autonomous car. Uh, therefore, it won't save any lives at the end. And they'll actually wind up taking lives, unfortunately, along the way. So we're going to get into that too. But uh, I, because of my background, coincidentally, when I saw what was going on, it was very obvious to me. So because I believe I can leverage the experience I have from aerospace, I've been trying to help the autonomous vehicle world um, make a transition to doing the right thing. Um, but, so, but let me go back to the, uh, the Joshua Brown accident. So it, it was a uh, year and a half, two years ago, uh, Joshua Brown was driving a Tesla car in Florida, I believe, and his um, vehicle... Uh, went basically underneath of a trailer, of a tractor trailer, and it turned out that his car, the systems in his car, thought that the side of the trailer was the sky. Um, and uh, he also um, was found out to be not, not, act, not taking control of his car for long periods of time, like 30 minutes or 33 minutes or whatever it was. So, um, so he lost his life. Um, so th th this goes back to the whole problem in the autonomous uh, vehicle sector. So first, let me say that um, I, I am all for creating this technology, okay? So I don't know if it's going to um, do all the things people say it is, right? Because any new technology has negative, you know, negative unintended consequences you weren't aware of, things you thought were going to be great aren't, or things that you had no idea you could use it for, you use it for, okay? But I believe that it's important for us to create this technology um, because I think uh, it will have a net value added, I, I, I believe. So, and also the people who are doing it, right? So I'm, I'm going to be critical of, the, of most of the engineers creating these, these systems. But before I do that, I want, I want to say, uh, I understand that they work extremely hard, that they're very intelligent people. Um, but what we have here is kind of a perfect storm of, of where they come from and, and, the, and, and, and the industry they're normally in and what that industry normally does and how it does it. And, and they're leveraging that along with artificial intelligence and machine learning in order to train or teach these vehicles. So uh, what's occurring is the majority of the autonomous vehicle makers are, and people have seen it, they've read about it, they're driving around training the, the, the system in, in, in what to do. So, it, so it's machine learning through neural networks, which are basically supposed to repli replicate the the basically the computer mechanism in your, in your, in your brain. And basically, um, 
they they show it what to do, and then they they they, they let go of the wheel, which is called public or public shot public shadow driving or safety driving. I don't call it safety driving because it's not safe. Um, but what they do is, you know, they teach it and then they let go to, to see how the car does. Um, so problem here is this. First is art, AI or machine learning has several uh, negative, negative factors. Uh, and that is one of them is it, it takes a lot of repetition, a lot of repetition to learn. And the way it learns is, is basically um, it does something and it, and it creates an error and you of all and there's all these inputs to all these segments of the the system or the software and you try to find out where you you change values or change weighting in the way it treats input so that it thinks a little bit differently the next time so that you can drive that error down to an acceptable point to where it does the right thing so it could be hundreds thousands of times okay the other problem with uh machine learning is it can be fooled by noise um, and sometimes it just does something just way out of whack. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever done it, looking for a picture. You could be looking for a picture of a cat and get something completely else, right? So they call those edge cases or corner cases. So it has these issues. However, um, it seems to be a far better method than our traditional method of software, which was you have to write, you have to, you have to write code that, that, that accommodates every situation. And the amount of variables in autonomous vehicles is, a ma is massive. It's just huge. So you would have to write if, if, if then cases or else, or, or you, you would have to write all these checks it would have to do when you'd have to write that software. So doing it this way, it's, 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 it's faster. But again, it has problems. So uh, the, the, the issue is, is that these auto, auto, uh, autonomous vehicle manufacturers um, they think that it's only going to take a couple million miles or a couple billion miles of driving around, stumbling on scenarios, and re-stumbling. And the reason why I say stumbling is because you're out in the world. You generally can't control creating scenarios. Now, easy scenarios, benign scenarios, common scenarios like driving down the road, making a right, highway driving, most of it, those are benign or simple, non-complex or dangerous scenarios. You can re you can you can uh, re-stumble on those, but eventually they're going to get to situations that are complex and actual accident scenarios. And the problem is, is when the public figures that out, because right now the public, look, the public trusts these people because they make apps and they make games and they think somehow that those people, since they do those amazing things that they use every day in their life, that somehow they can do this. I cannot tell you enough of, of how, how, how unprepared most of these people are to do autonomous vehicles. And you'll hear me say that we should use aerospace, okay? Even the aerospace people will look at autonomous vehicles because they're getting into it now, and they will say this is incredibly hard, okay? Uh, but, but the problem is, is that the commercial IT world, the people who make apps, the people who make games, the people who made, literally made Twitter, okay, that, that's where these people are coming from, or Google. In their average day, they don't work on systems as remotely as complex as this, and they don't do something else that's extremely important. They don't do something called exception handling or neg a lot of negative testing. Uh, another terminology that most people recognize is what if. They don't do a lot of what if scenarios. The fact of the matter is NASA, for example, does so many what if scenarios that they put far more engineering and work into what if scenarios than they do the, 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 the things they normally want to occur, which is why, as far as I know, there's never been a space tragedy because of software, which is amazing. And, and in the airlines, their, their uh, safety rating is, is 6.4 sigma, right, which is 99.99966, right? That's how safe they are. 
So, and then last year, right, there was no deaths, as I understand it, in, in the airline industry. So, You're correct. That's what I've heard as well. That was on the news so, just the other day. Yes. And Trump right. took credit so for it. These, in what capacity, but he feels like he has a, uh, a hand in that. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, when the first tragedy after this occurs, I'm sure he'll, he'll say uh, that, that he's sorry for his involvement in that. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, so what you have is a perfect storm. You have these engineers, again, who are incredibly intelligent, who mean well or are trying to do the right thing. They don't know what they don't know. And so they go off and they think that they can use AI to do this. And they're, they're realizing now those negatives about AI that I told you. And again, they think they can drive around and re-stumble on things. Well, um, so there's that issue of when they get to the complex and dangerous scenarios, they're going to wind up having accidents and they're going to literally have to have them on purpose. And when that, occur when that happens, the public's never going to put up with this. Because right now, the public is, the, the, these companies are hyping their, their progress. None of them are anywhere near level four or, or where, a, where a vehicle can take over in most situations. They're nowhere close. Nowhere close. And, but they all, they're all in a race, right? They all have, these people have pride. They have ego. They want to get funding. So they're all one-upping each other with the amount of hype they're putting out. To the point where Intel actually did a commercial with LeBron James like a month or two ago, and it was discovered to be fake. So, all right, so, yeah, so this perfect storm. You have people who are pretty much out of their depth from an engineering rigor and process point of view. They're using artificial intelligence that has those weaknesses, as I said, and they're underestimating the amount of miles that they would need because you, you have to redrive hundreds if not thousands of times, millions of scenarios. So people think it's millions of miles. Elon Musk thinks it's 6 billion miles. Well, Rand who did a study, and they looked at, well, how many scenarios could there be? How many times do you have to drive them? And they came to the conclusion it's impossible, that you can never drive enough miles to get remotely close to the amount. And Toyota put a number on that that was uh, a trillion. Okay? So you cannot drive a trillion miles. It's not going to happen. I looked at it mathematically from a dollar point of view. That would be 234,000 234, cars driving 24 hours a day for 10 years. Now, if you put in, if you factor in the amount of miles they're driving and the fact that you have to replace the cars, you have to buy the sensors, you have to have the people driving them and pay their salaries and gas. And, that, and that's the only cost I put in. No other company costs, right? So, so there's a lot more costs. I just took a very conservative look at it. it that's $300 billion. So... So they're going to wind up hurting people, and when the public figures that out, there's no way they're going to let them create traffic accidents thousands of times over and over so they, they can learn from it. They're never going to allow for the traffic jams. They're never going to allow for the accidents. They're never going to allow for the injuries. They're never going to allow for the casualties, right? So right now, the press and everybody, there's this giant echo chamber of hype all wrapped around some levels of ignorance and arrogance in the industry, and you know it's all just this perfect storm. And the government isn't doing anything because they don't get this. And they think, well, um, we have to let the technology sort itself out. As, as a matter of fact, the GAO, the General Accounting Organization, GA, General, yes, they, um, they came out and said that the DOT, Department of Transportation in D.C., is not doing enough. They don't have a plan and that, that they should be doing testing. Well, the gentleman in charge, the person in charge of the DOT said, well, we're going to wait for the technology to work itself out, which is ridiculous because there's nothing about the technology that keeps you from writing the tests that prove that these cars are able to drive as good as a human or better than a human, and people believe that they have to drive 10 times better than a human, or people won't trust the machines. Because even at 10 times better, there's 34,000, 40,000 traffic, accident, traffic accidents in a year. 
uh, death, death, I, I believe. Is that the, I should know this figure. There's roughly 37,000. Oh, no, it's fatality. Um, that would come down to 3,000. So even with a 10x of the uh, improvement, there's still going to be there's still going to be fatalities. So, um, so now you have the trillion miles, you have 300 billion dollars, and you have the fact that when you start driving dangerous situations, um, you're never going to uh, continue because the press will figure it out, lawyers will figure it out, um, governments will figure it out, uh, the public will figure it out. They won't trust the industry. And they'll probably wind up overregulating, and they'll cause a delay uh, that, that will be far, far, far larger than if the industry self-policed, which is what people say on the right, right, uh, is, uh, well, let industry work it out without the government in a way, and they'll figure out the best thing. Again, I defy you to tell me when that's ever occurred in industry. Like the aircraft industry, there were tragedies that occurred decades ago, which drove us to the FAA, and the FAA is an amazing organization, and they have 6.4 sigma, Okay. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm having an art, a political argument because I could go the other way with the other party, but in this specific example. So, uh, so what you have is an untenable situation that cannot work. They will never, ever get remotely close to an autonomous car. Now, you know who's figured this out recently? Waymo. Waymo, who used to be Google Car, um, they recently came out and said um, that they're um, going to skip the public shadow driving and use more simulation, and they're also going to skip something called uh, handover which is level two, level three driving. So that's one thing I didn't go into. So handover is where, the, is where either you give control back to the vehicle or the vehicle gives control back to you. There are some companies who are putting out vehicles right now that will hand over to you. So here's the problem with that. They, they use monitoring and notification systems that are supposed to watch your eyes, keep track of what you're doing on the wheel, and, um, and then make sure that if you're distracted that you can get notified to take back over. Some companies like Tesla will let you actually let go of the wheel for some minutes now and avert your eyes. As soon as you avert your eyes and you let go of the wheel, you start losing situational awareness. What happens is, is, is if the vehicle notifies you to take over, you have to regain situational awareness. You have to, you have to look, look and listen around you. And many, many, many studies have been done, and NASA supports this, and so does Toyota, Waymo, and others now, that you cannot get enough situational awareness often enough for this practice to be safe. You need, four, you need five to 45 seconds of time, which sounds like an incredible amount of time in some cases, to gather enough situational awareness so that when you grab the wheel, you do the right thing the right way. NHTSA made this worse because in 2015, they did a study saying this could be made safe, but the problem is that their study ignored situational awareness on purpose. They determined that you, that you gained full control of the car again when all you did is grab the wheel. So they would have you distracted, texting or something, they would alert you, you would grab the wheel, and they'd stop the clock. And they go, look, you can gain control in under two seconds. That's absolute nonsense. They never looked at the quality of the action that you would be taking after you took back over and how much situational awareness time you needed in order to affect the right action the right way. So it, it turns out it's actually, you can't make it safe. So this is what's occurring. And again, the reason why there aren't a lot of deaths so far is because they're not allowing or they're not driving complex or dangerous scenarios, but they're going to have to. Now, Waymo came out two months ago and said, we're going to stop level two and three. Oh, so let me explain the level, sorry. Level one is basically where you drive and you get no help from the car. Level, level two is basically where um, the car is giving you some assistance and making you a better driver, which is what the airline industry does with um, with uh, helping you be a be better pilot, like lane keeping, 
or automatic or, or automatic emergency braking, these things are are helping you be um, a better driver. So again, um, so let me go back. Sorry, level zero is driver only. I made a mistake. Level zero is driver only. Level one is where the car is assisting you. Level two is where there's some automation, and 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 then level three is there's conditional automation. So it gets a little confusing. But basically, the part that people should care about is, is, is when the car takes over steering and allows you to avert your eyes. That's the part that really matters. Because a car handling acceleration or braking for you is one thing, but a vehicle handing, handling the, um, drive, the steering wheel is, is a whole different deal. So Waymo came out and said, we're not going to have handover in those areas, and we're not going to do public shadow driving, and we're going to use more simulation in order to get through all of this. Now, the problem with that is the reason why people haven't gone to more simulation is because, again, this is a perfect storm. The simulation technology in the autonomous vehicle industry and even automotive industry is not where it needs to be. Aerospace actually has had the technology that people need, and it's had it for 20 years. The problem is the people in the autonomous vehicle industry who are commercial IT people have no idea what they don't know, and they think they have to innovate everything because God knows they've innovated everything else. So they think that there's no reason to ask for help from anybody else because AI is going to do it all, and we're going to drive a couple million miles, and so it all snowballs. And Wasn't again, to some make, way to let people know, like some of the, the, the people in charge of some of these companies, you know, get them to rethink a little bit and maybe somehow get involved, as you say, maybe working with NASA with some of these more advanced simulators, that's the solution it sounds like. Yeah. So isn't there something that can be done about that to kind of educate them so they yes. know there's another option to save, you know, potentially thousands of lives? Yes. So, yes. So, uh, to, to do a, a well, it's a little bit of self-promotion, but it's actually extremely unfortunate. There's not a lot of voices who are who both understand this and who are loud. Uh, and I, so I'm making some headway. Uh, I've actually made a lot in the past couple of months. Uh, SAE, who's the Society for Automotive Engineering, who also handles aeros aerospace best practices, they're the organization that governments and auto industry uses to, to, to figure out practices and procedures. They invited me to be on their task force to help them determine how they're going to test these vehicles. So, so good on them because they know my background, they know my point of view, and good on them for, for bringing me in because I have no problem voicing this opinion. However, I'm an outsider. I'm one guy, and I was from aerospace. So, uh, I, so I point to Waymo. So Waymo, uh, uh, making this paradigm shift to me is massive, and people should not ignore it. They are skipping the handover. They're skipping the public shadow driving. They're using mostly simulation. As a matter of fact, John Krafstick, who's their CEO, came out after they made their paradigm shift and actually admonished Tesla for continuing to do what they used to be doing. <laughs> but but now that now that Waymo gets it, they realize, well, wait a minute. If we don't change, there's going to be that first child is going to perish, that first family, right? No, it's not hyperbole, okay? It's 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 not you know uh, making up something so I can be dramatic. It will happen. So, and so when that, it's different. So when Joshua Brown died, he's an adult male, it's a little different. People think about that differently. When a, when a family or a child dies, that's going to be a whole different deal. So I'm trying to jump in and avoid that. So I've been engaged, actually, in trying to help people uh, understand all the things I just described to you and, and then how to remedy it um, and, and to make it so that the simulation technology in this industry gets to where it needs to be so that you can replace most of that public shadow driving with simulation and test tracks, and, and and then that way nobody will go bankrupt trying, and they won't harm they won't harm more people than that that than obviously need be, and because um, right now, for example, Elon Musk has said, well, you know, the, along the way there'll be accidents and issues and, and, and casualties, but they're they're un, they're an unfortunate part of getting to where we need to be, so we can save more lives later. If that was the truth, I would agree, but it's not. 
the majority of the lies they would take using that process would be, are avoidable because, you, because, again, you can do it in simulation. And then when I bring up simulation, some people say, well, they think of aerospace simulation as airlines, as commercial air, and they, would, they say, well, commercial air is nowhere as near as complicated as what occurs on city streets, for example. Well, you know what? You're right. However, DOD does war games in simulation and, and with simulators, and those are incredibly complex with lots of different entities moving a lot faster than cars. So from a loading standpoint, from a speed standpoint, from a complexity standpoint, DOD for a long time now has been doing the things that need to be done and, and that technology can be brought over and used in the autonomous vehicle sector and we can solve the problem. Well, that, that's always good to hear some, some kind of solutions out there. So, um, yeah, let's just hope before it develops any further. How long have um, these uh, autonomous cars been out on the market? I mean, I believe it's just Tesla. Is that correct? Well, so they hype it. So right now there's actually, well, there's no actual fully, there's no actual autonomous vehicle on the market. There are, there are vehicles that are doing, that are doing subsets of of the autonomous activity. So they call it geofencing basically. And what that means is um, that something in your environment um, uh, or or the the capabilities that you have are a subset of the, of the larger set. So for example, in Waymo's defense, not only did they have the paradigm shift, but they just announced that they are going to a, an area of Phoenix now uh, and driving for the first time. They were the first company to actually have no one in the driver's seat uh, in these cars. Now, there is somebody in the back seat with a kill switch, um, but um, they're the first ones to have a car without a driver in the driver's seat to take back over. But they are geofenced uh, to a section of Phoenix. So what that means is, Look, Phoenix is a gridded city. Those are, it's a new city. It's, it's gridded patterns. It's well lit, um, and um, it's well lined, and they can only drive up to a light rain because that's it's another issue, but the sensors can't handle bad weather. They can't handle blizzard. They can't handle driving rain, which is, which is amazing. It's kind of ridiculous. So, um, so Waymo is off the hype bandwagon too, right? So now Waymo is saying after eight years, we are to the point where we can handle a small gridded section of Phoenix up to a light rain. So that tells you that this technology is nowhere near close. Um, so, but uh, there are vehicles that are out there that have some handover. Uh, GM, there are Super Cruise and other vehicles. There are some vehicles out there. Now, Tesla lets people grab, let go of the wheel and avert their eyes for too long, in my opinion. The, the GM Super Cruise, from what I'm seeing, it looks like you can't take your hand off the wheel at all or, or divert your eyes really at all. Um, if that's the case, then that's not really a handover vehicle at that point. It's really assisting you be a better driver, right? So like in, air, in the airlines, the autonomous systems, other than the autopilot, where you can let go of the wheel, but, it, you know, it maintains altitude and speed. The systems in an aircraft help you be a better pilot. So, for example, if you tried to do something in an aircraft that would exceed the, the capabilities of that aircraft, the system will, tell you, will, will not let you do it or it will at least warn you to keep you from doing it or to encourage you not to do it. So that makes, it's called augmented driving, right? Which, which I think everybody's in agreement that we want, right? The automatic emergency braking, the lane keeping, um, the, the, all, all the features that make you better at what you do without you ceding so much control or situational awareness that you're, that you're not engaged or you're not the primary entity responsible for the uh, operation of the vehicle. Okay. All right. How do you think um, – um, who came up with the idea of using lasers to guide cars? Is it just kind of a so, trial and 
Yeah. So LIDAR is interesting. So it's, it, um, originally LIDAR uh, was used to uh, map things like forests. Um, the Forest Service used it and other people used it, or people actually use it in construction or in architecture to map, to, to 3D map a room. So it's, it's like the system that you have in your home maybe where you have, you have a laser system and a receiver and you can, mark, you can map a line in your room. Um, what it does is it sends out pulses of light um, using various technologies and various signals and, and, and phases of signals, and it gets back a reading. And because it, uh, it, it can create a 3D representation, a really pretty accurate one, of, of, of the things that it sees. Um, the problem is, is that uh, it, it, it has a problem with uh, precipitation and other objects that are in the air. There's also camera-based systems that will go out and they look at things. And because they have this massive library, which is massive library of things, they go out and they go, I recognize that as a car, I recognize that as a person, I recognize that as a whatever it is. So you have the camera and LIDAR systems. The problem is that neither one of them are very good in bad weather. Um, they do use LIDAR, but it's a very basic radar. I think the solution is actually going to wind up being 3D radar. Um, I see some companies working on it. Um, the aerospace has it. There's a reason why aerospace, especially DOD, didn't use LIDAR uh, and especially didn't use it as their main navigation, or their main system for seeing objects because of these issues. They've been using 3D radar for a long time. I think it's an area where if people would have worked with aerospace more, they would have figured this out and not wasted so much time and money. Um, uh, but, but so they have, they have ultrasonic systems, they have cameras, they have LIDAR, they have some radar. Um, but again, they, they, can't, they, they can't handle bad weather. So they, they, um, they have to work that issue out. I've actually asked people and never received the response. I've asked people the question, can you prove to me that the base technology, the technology that you're relying on for camera-based camera systems or LIDAR can ever work in bad weather? Prove to me that you can actually work in a blizzard right, at all, and nobody's ever responded that they can. I I'm concerned that the core technology of those systems just won't permit it. And again, they're gonna have to go to something like 3D radar or they'll have to geofence themselves to a situation where they don't do that, but that's ridiculous because you could be out somewhere in many places in the country and, ha and, and come across a storm, right? You can't just, you know, or you'd have to have handover, right? So, but in that case, then, you're, you're, you know, you're getting to a, a full L4, L level four is not going to happen, uh, except, for example, if it's not raining or, or, or snowing heavily. All right, well, we just have a few more minutes on the show, so maybe any closing points or comments, and also if you want to give a little bit of information about how to reach you and how to learn a little bit more about you, that would be um, in your YouTube channel if you have one, which I know yeah, you do. No, I don't have a YouTube channel, but I, I am on LinkedIn, uh, you know, so people... You're on can, YouTube. You can, I get, you can search you on YouTube and you can find some videos. Yes. Yeah, they'll, yeah, yeah, they'll see, well, especially the deep water, the whistleblowing thing, they'll see that. I, put, I do most of my writing on LinkedIn and articles. I put some on Medium. Uh, I, ha I am on Facebook, um, so uh, people, I guess, can get a hold of me there. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and if there's anything I can do to help anybody out in any, any of these areas, um, I am open to that. But, but, but please don't contact me for cybersecurity or autonomous vehicles unless you plan on doing the right thing the right way. Um, because I'm your best friend if you're if you're at least trying to do the right thing the right way. But if you're not, you really don't want me. You don't want me there. 
Okay. And also, uh, some, uh, on my part, I just want to ask people, you know, to maybe contribute a little bit to uh, this month. We're a little bit behind on donations that for, for uh, Revolution Radio. You can go to freedomslips.com, and there's a donate button, and you can sign up and be a subscriber, a monthly subscriber. And, you know, as I mentioned before, that these stations are very important. You know, we are not backed by advertisement. We have no, there's no special interest. We're here. I'm allowed to have a format that I like and that I choose, and I can share information in, in a way that wouldn't be possible on other stations. So I really appreciate platforms like this, and I hope everybody else does too. I know we have a lot of listeners, and we're doing very well. So let's keep up the good work and keep these stations alive. And again, I want to say thank you, Michael, for coming on. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, thank you very much. And everybody come back next week. I've got myself another whistleblower, and I hope you guys join us at the same time, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and look forward to having you there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.